in your wildest dreams, guess what happens? I'm like sitting outside the, the building, calling. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be good or bad. <laughs> I'm Nicole Mlinarik for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. In this episode, I speak with Dr. David Gonzalez, a professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. My name is David Gonzalez, and I'm a newly minted associate professor with tenure here in the School of Medicine. And my lab studies host-microbe interactions, so really looking at microbial-driven diseases in humans. Every journey into science is a unique one, and today, David shares all the surprising twists and turns of his. He tells us all about his academic career, from leaving high school a month into his freshman year, to later enrolling in community college, and eventually earning his PhD in biochemistry. We'll hear him describe his experiences as a Mexican-American in academia, and the peers, mentors, and family members that inspired him along the way. We also get to learn about some exciting developments in his research studying the interactions between humans and bacteria, and the ways that our gut microbiome will influence the future of medicine. I had a great time chatting with Dr. Gonzalez, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. So you've obviously had a really successful research career and an exciting journey through academia, but I wanted to step back a little bit and sort of start at the beginning. So can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your life before you got involved in science and biochemistry? The story really starts um, as being a native San Diegan. So I'm a native of North County, San Diego. Uh, my father immigrated in 69. And then my mother, she was from Texas, from El Paso. They say they were in Texas before it was Texas, right? right. <laughs> so yeah. so, so they, they've been there a while. And both of them in 69 came over, one family from Texas, one family from Mexico, both ended up in San Marcos. And they ended up in the chicken ranch. So my parents met there. They both worked at the chicken ranch. And that's kind of how my life, you know, started, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where David came. You know, one thing that, that I think is huge was, you know, my father was like 12 or 13 when he came over. My mom was a little older, but both of them didn't have any education. The reason I mentioned my parents' education is because growing up in, in my household, right, just me and my sisters, I mean, school was never um, a thing. It was really work. Yeah, so I left school in freshman year, and then my dad at the time, he was doing landscaping. You know, he had left the chicken ranch because it was closing down and stuff, and, you know, so he just started, you know, started doing landscaping. And, and yeah, so, I mean, I, at age, what, 15, 14, 15, I was like, you know, I'm going to do the same, right? I'm just going to go work with my dad. And we did that for about four, four and a half years. Just me and my dad in, the, in one pickup truck, um, you know, getting, getting, uh, uh, <laughs> getting um, jack-in-a-box tacos like at six in the morning, you know, uh -huh. with coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then go to work and cut trees and cut grass and, 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 you know, work hard labor, you know, all day long. David continued to do landscaping work with his dad for the remainder of his teenage years until he was 20 years old. And then um, two things really happened when I was 20. Two big things happened. One, I met my now wife, mm -hmm. right? Um, and two, I used to cut a lawn across the street from Miracosta College up in North County, San Diego, in Oceanside. Right. Yeah, so I used to cut lawns there. And I remember being 20 and almost wanting to cry a couple of times because I would be in the truck and I would look over and I would see students like my age 
like, I don't know. It was something I don't, I couldn't even understand, explain what it was, but it was something yearning from like my soul from like inside me saying like, like, what are you doing? Right. What do you, and at this, and you know, during that time I had gotten married young and had, and had a baby young, my first boy, David, the third. Yeah. Um, and, and for some reason that, that seeing, you know, one of my, you know, kind of, you know, people my age have me laughing and having a good time with their backpacks. It just, you know, something in me, when I had David, when I walked out of Tri-City Hospital, when I had Dave, David, I'm like, you know what, I, you know, I'm going to go, I, this is, this is, I'm going to break this chain. I, I can't, you know, we can't live like this, right? We can't sustain ourselves because even if we were working every day, it was difficult to maintain anything, right? Something told me education was the way to go. And I, and I jumped in head first. The day after his first son was born, David enrolled in community college. He started at Palomar College, then moved to Miracosta College, but those early days of academic life weren't exactly smooth sailing. For some reason, um, you know, I was, you know, naive and hard-headed at the time, and I didn't go see a counselor, and I just enrolled, I think, in five classes. And yeah, it was, oh God, it was horrible. It was, I certainly was not ready, ready to, to take sure. five college-level courses, and they had four Fs and a C in Spanish, and yeah, my, my parents won't let me won't let me forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a realization that this is not an easy thing, you know. And, and, and there's a reason why you go to high school, right? You know, and there's a reason why you get trained because you know it, it takes it takes um, you know skills, right, to, to to make it through these courses. Yeah, not necessarily well, more or less work or more motivation than the work you were doing. You were obviously working hard, but a different set of skills. Yeah, yeah. I always thought like, wow, you know, how are these people so good? Like, but I always noticed like the same people were always like the best in the classes. Hmm. So I started like really looking at those people and studying those people and seeing like, what, like, why are they always get A's, right? So I really became good friends with one of them. Um, he was from Yemen uh, named Norris. So he was like an excellent student, had that burning desire to prove something. So this guy is willing to do anything pretty much to make sure that he was the absolute master of whatever subject was so yeah so I really adopted that that uh you know work ethic right as you said as you alluded to earlier right you know I already had like this like I, I had no problem waking up at 4 30 in the morning working till six at night there's no problem right right now I was taking that same energy and that same desire into into academia that same kind of thrust right mm-hmm. and Norris was one of the good people that really hung with me so so he helped me along the way this is the first of many characters that David mentions during our conversation people who have left big marks on his life and helped guide him through his journey. My story, I tell people, my story is about encountering really good people in this world. People that, for some reason or another, helped me. Another one of these people was his first chemistry professor at community college. David started school as a religious studies major, eager to explore the big mysteries of life. But things didn't end up going exactly as he had planned. And then because of circumstance, I changed my major. Then it was because my wife had to work. She got like a second shift. I couldn't take, I couldn't pick up the kids. So I was forced to take chemistry. So I took the class and I think it was, I, I felt the last time I felt that way was when I saw my wife for the first time. You know, when mm-hmm. I saw my wife for the first time, she was, I was on a bus. She was walking by and I remember her having this little coat and a white, I just jumped off the bus and went to the top. <laughs> of the that, that same feeling, that same feeling when, wow. when the professor talked about chemistry, so he was a wonderful professor, Don Robinson. I don't know. He, I walked into his class and I was super nervous and like didn't want to be there. And he says, look, you guys, have you guys ever seen this? And he went to the shelf and he pulled out three bottles. 
and he started doing these mixing and he took a spoon and then he's like, he made a plastic. I'd never seen that. And I was so amazed. And I just felt like the ability that a man can go to a shelf and make something and make something that's useful, fell in love. And I was like, okay, this is like, wow. So I changed from religious studies to a chemistry major. Wow. <laughs> it's a big shift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and a lot of it's because Don Robinson really inspired me that day. He, he really did. Dr. Gonzalez spent five years in community college before transferring from Miracosta to Cal State San Marcos to finish his bachelor's degree. He was full of passion and drive, excited to complete his chemistry studies, but wasn't yet sure what he was going to do after graduating. That was until he met Dr. Jose Mendoza. I have to preference this by saying I, I never wanted to make me being a colored student a thing ever. I've always ran from that. I don't know why. I, I wish my in my psyche I can tell you why. Maybe because a lot of my family's from like, you know, they're really gung-ho American, like, you know, you know, there's a right. struggle between like being your the, the Latin Mexican part of you and then being like the American part of you. And I think maybe that's what shied me away from ever like bringing that up. Like I never would talk about that or that wasn't a thing for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, the only reason I tell you this is because I was kind of amazed at what happened that day. So I walk into the classroom and Jose Mendoza is like, he's like, you know, like a maybe 50 year old guy, um, Mexican from Mexico city, very, very, uh, rough accent, but he was the, you know, full professor of biochemistry at Cal state. And he had published all these wonderful papers and, you know, was a top scientist. Right. And, and when I saw him, I don't know, it was like, like, I don't know, like something hit me right in the, hit the center of my, my, my forehead. It was like, that's what you're going to do. That's who wow. you're going to and, and I left there. And ever since that day, I was like, okay, everything I do, every action I make is going to be towards being a professor um, like, like Jose Mendoza. While studying at Cal State San Marcos, David realized if he wanted to pursue a career in biochemistry, he would need to get experience doing research in a lab. I, I remember emailing like 30 people on campus. Um, this was, yeah, back in like early 2000s. And nobody responded except one person. Hmm. One person and his name, he still works here. His name is Sinsum Joseph. And wow, uh, you know, another blessing. What, what, a, what a wonderful man. If you're a young student and has no idea what they're doing and you go into a lab, there's a lot of professors that will, can chop you down real quick, right? Oh, yeah. Completely opposite. He's very nurturing, caring, making sure that you're comfortable and so he studies how proteins are made. And yeah, it was a great experience. David worked in Dr. Joseph's lab at UC San Diego for about a year and a half when Dr. Joseph encouraged him to consider pursuing a PhD. He explained that David could get paid to continue his research training in grad school and would be on track to pursue his dream of becoming a professor. Through this mentorship, David applied and was admitted to UC San Diego's chemistry and biochemistry graduate program. At the time, David assumed he would do his thesis work in Dr. Joseph's lab, continuing the projects he had already been working on. But a chance encounter at the program's first year student retreat led him to meet a new professor, Dr. Peter Dorstein. Well, that was another turning point, uh, Nicole, in my life when that <laughs> happened. Another turning point because, you know, it, it was, again, like that feeling again, like it was all correct. Everything felt so right about Peter. He was mm. young, super ambitious dude who I felt like if I jump on his train, I'm going to be successful. That's what I needed. I needed a guarantee. And since, since, since this lab was great, and I think I could have been successful there, but this, the fire that this new assistant professor was bringing, right. And the technology, 
really contemporary technology that Peter was bringing to the campus, you know, just blew me away. Yeah. Just blew me away. So I, I, I ended up joining his lab, right? So I, I ended up being Peter's first student, first graduate wow. student. That yeah. can be a risky thing sometimes. So yeah, well, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right. I was still like, remember, like the, I was, I was what, like a couple of years away from cutting grass down uh, the lawn here, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, you know what I was getting into. I just knew that this guy brought the fire, right? Yeah. yeah. My type of guy, like my yep. type of guy that I wanted to be around. David went on to complete his graduate studies in Dr. Dorstein's lab, publishing many research papers using new technology that was being developed in the lab. The team used these new research tools to collaborate with other scientists, including Dr. Jack Dixon and Dr. Victor Nizé. I used to work in Peter's lab and then go to their labs, and I used to see how they were. And I'm like, wow, I want to work for these guys. I didn't even care what they did in their lab. It was more about what wonderful people they are and how they treated their, their, their staff. And, mm. and that was my, my, my drive. After earning his PhD, David worked for three years as a postdoctoral fellow for Dr. Dixon and Dr. Nizé. He was entering a groove, running his own research projects, and continuing to publish his discoveries. But just as he was getting into this flow, an email subject line stopped him dead in his tracks. And I got an email uh, second year into my postdoc from Palmer Taylor. It was just only in the header. It just said, and I saved it. I still have it. <laughs> it said, <laughs> uh, let's talk about your future. Wow. For context, Palmer Taylor was the dean of the SCAG School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. So for him to want to talk about your future in science, that's kind of a big deal. Oh, my God. My heart, I got so scared. Yeah. <laughs> I got so scared. So this is second year in PhD. This is second year of postdoc. Postdoc. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I already finished with Peter. Like, of course, me as like, you know, like, you know, the imposter syndrome and, you know, being a, a, yeah. a student of color. Right. I, I literally immediately I was like, oh, man, you know, what's going on here? What, I, I don't remember doing anything. I'm wrong. in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember going home to my wife and I'm like, oh, this is I don't know. I mean, I got to find a job it's over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he wants to talk about your future and you interpret it as uh, the, the future's gone. <laughs> yeah. Pretty. I mean, my, my time at UCSD is over. Pretty much. Oh, That's what I thought. I, I, I mean, yeah, it was super stressed and yeah. super nervous. So and, even the, you know, 20 papers at this point is you're, oh. you're still feeling the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Still. And, yeah. Uh, I would say it probably didn't go away until I got my R01, but I'll, we can get there. You oh, know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So then I, I met with Palmer and it was great. I was actually the complete opposite of what I thought. And he's, yeah. So he was like, I've been following your career. And I was like, really? I was like, really? Yeah. I was so, and, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, you know, I think you're doing wonderful things here. And what's your, your plan? And I'm like, no, I, I, I said, I would love to be a professor. So, so I, I started listening to him and seeing, seeing it. He said, okay. He's like, look it, there may be a plan here, you know, an avenue for you here at UCSD. And yeah, so they came up with a plan and, and an offer. And um, yeah, I, I decided to come here to work. David pauses here to say that his career trajectory, while hugely successful thus far, was really unique. When hiring a new professor, academic hiring committees often look for scientists from other universities. Many researchers have worked at multiple schools all across the country before getting hired in a faculty position. Part of this is to ensure that they'll be able to bring something new to the university when they start their own lab. So for someone like David, who had lived with his family in Southern California his whole life, to do your PhD, postdoc, and become a faculty member all at UC San Diego was a bit out of the ordinary. 
I really appreciate Palmer. I really appreciate that he challenged me, right? He really uh, challenged me because, you know, he really sat me down and made me think about like, what type of platform am I going to establish here at UCSB? Is it going to be like Victor's? Is it going to be like Peter's? Because if it is, it's not going to work. Right. Have, we, mean, we have them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so he really challenged me. And, and at that time, it was almost like perfect timing. It was 2014 in the field that I'm in. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, you know, people always say, you know, significant advancement in the technology, a huge, you know, quantum leap. In the, well, there was a real one in 2014, November, a real mm-hmm. one at Harvard. So Harvard really had a genuine, huge leap in the technology and how you can actually do this. And I knew if I went to Harvard and I brought that technology back, I mean, the, really the forefront technology in this, right. in this field, it's going to be, you know, it's going to blow. It's going to be so powerful. Yeah. So, yeah so, so that was the next hurdle. How do you do that? Dr. Gonzalez starts digging through the literature on this new technology and keeps stumbling upon this name, Wilhelm Haas. Who was Wilhelm Haas? That was kind of my, my, my question back in 2014 in November. Who is this guy? Where is he? Dr. Haas was a new faculty member working in Boston. Dr. Gonzalez, a San Diego native who had never left Southern California, decided he was going to go to Boston, meet Dr. Haas, and bring this new technology back to his own lab. I, took the, I, I remember taking the red eye to Boston and God, I think I cried when I got there because I felt so like, I asked my, I was just questioning like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I here? And yeah, it was just like, it was a very weird time in my life where I'm like questioning, what am I doing? <laughs> like, why am I in Boston alone without my family trying to come over and get this platform? Yeah. But anyways, so, sure. I, so, so getting on the T was an, an issue. I'd like, Felt so embarrassed. I didn't even know how to get on a tee. Uh-huh. And, and I got off on the Charleston Bridge. So I got off like basically two miles before the lab. And then I get there and I call him and guess what happens? In your wildest dreams, guess what happens? I'm like sitting outside the, the building, MGH, call him. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be good or bad. <laughs> he doesn't pick up. Oh no. Yeah. He doesn't pick up. This is after me running two miles. And then <laughs> he doesn't pick up the phone. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, okay, huh. let me try again. You know, I waited 10 minutes, called him again. He picked up, he picked Oof. up the phone. And guess what happened? He goes, oh, wait, I'm not going to be there. <gasps> I, was, I was supposed to be there three days. I'm not going to be there. But guess what? My postdoc, John LePec, can, can will take care, good care of you. It was great. It was actually awesome that that, that happened because I spent three days with John and then after those three days, I essentially brought back John, all the methods, all the technology back to UCSD. So mm-hmm. it, it was it was it was great. So it was great. And what a successful journey. I just keep thinking back to that image of you arriving there and feeling so out of place on your own, fighting for this new start in your career, the the future of you and science, your family, like really fighting for your future with this big yeah. risk. And, yeah. and then you, you call the guy and he's not, he's like, I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> Man. But it was like a blessing in disguise because yeah. I, he, he assigned me with a guy and, and this guy was literally, and still is, you know, one of the most, you know, proficient mass spectrometrists that I've met in my life. I'm still excited about this. Right. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, like, well, that's, yeah, that's clear. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it sounds like there's been that consistent pattern of you combining this obvious drive and curiosity and passion with 
this intuition for finding the right people to connect with that are going to keep lighting that fire in you, have that same fire lit in them. And those connections and those often kind of spontaneous, yeah, moments capitalizing on them has really helped propel you in each of these stages of your career. Yeah. We've been talking about the role that the you know most cutting edge technology has played in the success of your career. So I'm curious if you could share, yeah, just a little bit more about what that technology has brought to your lab, and if there are, are any current projects that your lab is working on that you're sort of most excited about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so how do you make an observation of any biological system? Well, I would say typically the majority of scientists really look at the DNA level, right? They're looking at the DNA level. Why? Because a lot of the tool sequencing, a lot of these tools really started at the DNA level. So a lot of the classically trained professors are really doing work at the DNA level. But if you ask yourself, what are they really trying to do, right? Like, what is, what is the real goal there? The real goal is to really just say something about the functional parts of the cell, which are proteins and metabolites. So, so, so I would say the majority of the people do try to study proteins by studying the DNA, right? Which is... Right a few levels away from, from actually looking at the protein. Um, I always say, if you want to know something about Nicole, like if I wanted to know something about you, I wouldn't, I, why wouldn't I talk to you directly? Why would I go talk to your second cousin? Right. 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 Yeah. Talk to you, right. So, so that's kind of like in the same sense, right. And the technology is very, very powerful. And I would say it's le- at the leading edge in, in, in the field at directly looking at proteins at directly asking that question to the protein. And that kind of segues me into, into it, a lot of the questions lie on, like, you know, people want a non-invasive way to predict disease and health. What's been huge in the lab, which surprises me, uh, I never thought I would be doing this. I did not propose this, hmm. but I would say one of the golden nuggets of the lab has been looking at fecal material. So Interesting. Poop, yeah. <laughs> we call it in the lab poop omics. <laughs> and, it, and it really circles back to the microbiome. Yeah. The microbiome is the collection of all the microbes that live in and on us. These include many types of bacteria, archaea, fungi, and viruses, which live on our skin, in our mouths, and in large part, in our gut. Think about it. You know, you know if you look at it at the DNA level, we only have 20 to 25,000 genes, but microbial, we have 20 million, right? So, you know, yeah. at the DNA perspective, we're more microbial than we are human, right? right? So, <laughs> So when you hear things like that, right, and then you start asking yourself, well, how can we study that? What's the best way to make an observation of the microbiome? Nothing compares to fecal material in terms of getting microbial information. What sort of questions are you asking once yeah, you have that information? Yeah. So, so, so we can monitor the stool, right? And we can tell you, look at this person has dysbiosis of the I'm, so predictability, right? That's one thing. That's huge. A non-invasive way to predict health and disease. That's yeah. probably the top way we're using it. The second way is we still are working with basic scientists here in the School of Medicine. So we, we are studying very basic mechanisms of host microbe interactions, um, mostly associated with like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. But my thought, the most, you know, what I've seen the most powerful thing about it is the diagnostic features of the fecal material where I can imagine just, you know, we have the proteins, we know them now, we know the metabolites. We literally can put a probe in the toilet and in, in real time can hit your iPhone while you're on it and tell you what you have or what you don't have. We need to ask ourselves, where, what is the future of you know, medicine, 
right? Yeah. Um, and the future of medicine has to incorporate and has to acknowledge and has to study the 20 million plus genes that we have inside of us. Mm-hmm. Those microbes are inside of us. They're making stuff, right? They're not doing nothing, right? They're making molecules or making proteins. They're making metabolites, right? I feel like there have been communities where this idea about the microbiome is becoming a hot topic and there is more, you know, should we be eating certain probiotics? Should we be doing different flushings of our toxins and things? Do you have any thoughts on, you know, what what would a a person in the public hearing this want to take away from some of your research? I would tell them, first of all, I would say uh, it's still early. Yeah. Right. You know, the scientific community, it hasn't really, you know, as a whole, hasn't studied the microbiome in a serious manner until like the human microbiome initiative started like 10, 12 years ago, something like this. Right. So we started looking at the microbiome and asking these questions, but those first 10, 12 years were really about composition, right? I mean, we're, we, the first question that we asked was, what's on us? What do we have on us? Where is it? What dominates? What dominates in your armpit? What dominates in your mouth? What dominates in your hair? What dom- so it was more about composition, right? So I think we did a great job at that. And that's why it was more of a DNA dominated field, right? But I think now we're getting to a point is like, we have a pretty good handle of what's there and how those things shift, even in the gut during health and disease. But now we're moving towards what do they, what are they doing? What are they doing? Are they yeah. doing it, right. And this is where the powerful proteomics and metabolomics comes into play the functional units of the cell. Right. So I would tell the audience is that the science is still early, but, but there certainly is tons of evidence that the microbiome does impact your health and disease. There is tons of evidence that your diet can impact your microbiome. Right. So, you know, we surely are, we are what we eat, right. Type, type of deal. Um, but I, but I, but I would ask Rick that with, we still need to learn a lot. We still, there's still a lot that we don't, and it's not that we don't know how to do it or that we haven't, it's just that, you know, we're, we're all, we're kind of in a really transitional period in microbiomes research where we, that foundation of what's there has been built. And now we're moving into like, how are they doing it? What are they doing it? What are the molecules? What are the proteins that are actually impacting health and disease? So, so I say, stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned. Awesome. Switching gears a little, how did you, I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit, but like, yeah, how did you manage sort of the work-life balance of an academic career, which is very demanding, and from the start, from, you know, undergrad, having this role as a father? One thing we haven't talked about in all this is that two boys got to witness all this. Right. Right. And I was really Mr. Mom. I was taking like my, like I said, Yolanda, my wife was the rock. Yeah. She didn't, she had to wake up every morning, go to work and and work extra. Right. That never changed throughout this whole time. I was the guy going to school, commuting, picking up the kids, dropping them off, going to helping them with their homework. How many times I had to literally sit them down in a park, give them problems so I can do, so I can actually do my thesis. So I can, so I, I, you know, I, I did, you know, so they did get to witness what it is. They, they saw the truth. I mean, they, you know, here's my dad. We're all going to bed. Guess what? Dad's staying up, you know, not sleeping that night, maybe, right? To do like a report or something for, for um, you know, for where my postdoc or my PhD. So I think they really understand and know the road. Um, I've always pushed them scientifically, 
you know, my son, my oldest son, David, now is a PhD student in the School of Medicine at UC Riverside in the biomedical sciences. He said, you know, right now he, he just texted me earlier. He was, I was excited because he said something similar to what I feel. He's like, I can't, he's like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to like, to, to be trained, to learn these wonderful things. Do you have any sort of final like thoughts or words of advice to other young scientists or people getting involved uh, in science? You know, mentorship and those personal connections have played such an important part in building your career. Do you have any reflections on how, you know, yeah, that's affected I, your I, mentorship? I there's, there's, um, crit- I mean, I, I, I have, I train many people mm-hmm. and, and, and mentor many, like, you know, mentor students. And I mean, I, I always tell people, come with honey, not a hatchet. This is really a, a business of relationships. It is. Yeah. It really is. Mentor to mentee, mentee to mentor, colleague to colleague, um, collaborator to collaborator. It's better to be more giving, right? And approach it that way, right? Don't approach it as, I want to be the first person to do this. I want, I, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're, we're only on this world for a, for a short amount of time. We really are you know, be nice, you know, and be good to your colleagues and think about and remember the greater good, you know, what's the best for my colleagues, for my mentees, you know, not just for myself, right? So I would say, one, follow what your heart is burning to follow. And two, you know, do it in a nice way. It really, I I, I think it makes a big difference. That's it for this episode of N equals one. You can find all our other N equals one episodes at health.ucsd.edu slash podcast as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us.